So we're going to continue talking about advocacy and lobbying. Where we left off was that advocacy is taking action in support of a cause or an issue or a person. How can advocacy be viewed as being fraternalistic? Like examples where you have people with resources and power (coughs) advocating or supporting people who have little voice or little power. And what are some examples where advocacy ends up being more disempowering for the people that are being advocated for. Can you guys think of examples where it has the impression of being like, oh, this is great, we're really helping these people, but actually it's disempowering and the people end up not really getting out of their rut or routine. Can you guys think of examples where advocacy actually hurts the people that are trying to be supported? Yeah. There's some international nonprofits where, you know, on the surface it's we're going and we're helping these mm-hmm. orphans and we're doing these things, but rather than empowering the local people, it's just us as Americans going in and just trying to take over the situation. Yeah. I have good intentions, but. But then they become dependent on the foreign aid or foreign resources, and there's no sense of setting them up to be self sustaining. So international development work is probably a great example of it being paternalistic. The way it's described in some ways is uh, cultural imperialism. So like when the U.S. goes into another country, we say these are the things that should be valued and, and upheld, and yet the local culture is saying, but this isn't who we are, and so you're imposing certain values because you know we're the people coming in and saving the people or you know, helping them. So that's a great example. Any other examples where advocacy work could actually undermine the development of the people being served. Or one organization, they say, don't ever do for someone what they can do for themselves. Paternalistic is being parenting of people, like, well, here, let me do this for you. And that disempowers the person from actually doing it themselves. And so if it's something that they can do themselves, create an environment where they can actually do it versus doing it for them. Do you have an example here? Well, I don't know if this really counts, but... I know with like the recent heroin outbreak, mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. Been, there's been a lot of lobbying and policy that wants to provide like safe spaces for people to shoot up in and like clean needle programs. <coughs> mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. kind of like enabling it as opposed to like, fixing it. Yeah, That's a controversial one. It's mm-hmm. like, do we distribute clean needles so that we reduce the spread of HIV infections. I mean, that's sort of why we're providing the clean needles. It's related to HIV, but then it's also enabling the heroin epidemic. So it's controversial. Well, the importance of the needle issue program is that they're trying to stop secondary causation. So what they want to do is they, there's so many bloodborne illnesses that are shared that way, and nobody that is doing an IV drug has ever said, this needle is dirty, I'm not going to. Just because if you're doing an IV drug, it's an addiction and there's something going on. And I think in this moment, advocacy and the advocacy for the nation has put forth in the just saying so is it's one thing. And then on the right-hand side, you've got, I'm going to exchange your needles. The problem is there's very, very little advocacy and support in the center of treatment, helping with the housing situations and stuff like that. So we're going to tell everybody, absolutely don't use. We're not going to help them stop using. But if you are using, we're going to make sure you don't infect anybody else by switching out your needles. Mm-hmm. So like, there's a huge gap in it. You're saying is one side is saying, don't use, stop use. Another side is saying, if we continue the way we're going, that there's going to increase the infection rates, 
widely, and then there's the huge middle ground of treatment. What do we do with people who are addicted to these different types of drugs? That voice is not as strong as the two outside voices. And that creates a huge detriment to the entire group of people advocating on anything with drugs. Sure. Advocacy and lobbying, it's political, and there's different sides of an issue, and so even advocating for things like in the education system, you have people who are huge advocates of charter schools and voucher systems and saying, let's sidetrack the public school system. Then you have others who are advocating hardly for the public school system and building up the strength and the effectiveness of the public school and public education system. And so advocacy, basically you're taking a stand on these different issues. And that's why maybe a lot of organizations Nonprofits don't engage in advocacy. They're just like, well, I'm going to do my tutoring program and I'm going to help the kids that I can. But really, I would say if you have a vision or a passion for education reform or whatever the issue is, advocacy, I think, is an essential part of it. Taking not only the, the local immediate issue, but actually looking at it systemically and on a broader scale of how do we bring about change in these areas. So advocacy is standing on the street corner and shouting, and lobbying is actually getting into the political system and changing who the elected officials are, what the bond measures are, what different propositions are within a community at a local, state, or federal level. And so you're actually lobbying for a particular political outcome, a change in the system. Lobbying is defined as action taken to support or oppose specific legislation. So advocacy is supporting a particular cause, and then lobbying is the next level, where you're actually trying to influence legislation. It could be the local city council, it could be at the state level or at the federal level. When you hear of lobbying or lobbyists, what are some of the things that come to mind, or what are some of your impressions of Lobbyists, yeah. I don't know why it was like really negative. Really negative, okay. In what way, like? I don't know, I just kind of think of like, kind of mindset with like Washington insiders, you know, corruption, like lobbying for less regulation on like drinking water, kids get poisoned, like things like that. Uh huh. So, any other impressions of lobbyists? I try to see it the opposite. I see lobbyists as being people who go in to try to make a difference and to try to change the system a little bit as opposed to like advocates who, I mean, they can scream, yell, hold signs, but they're not really taking initiative to making a difference in mm -hmm. what they believe in. So the lobbyists are, are being strategic and focused and going to the people with power, or the people with the ability to make decisions and trying to influence them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they have not the best motives. Both of you are right. That an example would be Chevron. Chevron hires lobbyists. Yeah. Well, Chevron hires lobbyists, but so does everyone else. So the important thing about the lobbyists is to remember is the negative feelings you have about most of them are because they are supporting somebody on the opposite side of what you feel. Yep. And then it comes back to just basically a business version of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. A business version meaning that it's financed. Yeah, that it comes down to finance and policy. But you have to look at it and say, hey, they have their right to their opinion and they can argue and they can support that thing because I also have my right to this. And as long as it meets the requirements of what the government itself, so the Constitution says, 
is safe, sane, and legal, you could disagree with it, but I think it takes a lot when you look at people, and there are some sketchy people in the lobbying community, but they're sketchy on both sides. Like, people will do what they want to get things done. Mm -hmm. So where the problem is and why we have this negative association is because of some of the corruption. Like, Jack Abramoff, this was probably five or six years ago, was an infamous lobbyist, and he was doing corrupt things, receiving money and funneling money to get his legislation that he was advocating for passed. Or even a common pattern is elected officials set themselves up for a post-political career to work for the companies that they had sort of passed legislation for that benefited those companies. And so one of the things even that Trump has talked about is that enforcing these policies that if you're an elected official that there would be like a five-year moratorium that you cannot go and work for the companies that you pass legislation for. And so I think that's what Evan Bayh ran into after he left government and went into the private sector. It's these conflicts of interest and it's where you're not necessarily self-dealing but you're, you're setting yourself up to benefit from the legislation that you're passing, or if you're a lobbyist, you're giving gifts to legislators, and these gifts are sort of like, hey, you know, we have a, a vacation rental in, in the Bahamas, does you and your family want to use it over the break? You know, if you're an elected official, you're not really allowed to do that, especially if it's from a lobbyist who's advocating for a certain policy that would benefit them. Or, or, you know, another one is the pharmaceutical industry. They're not lobbyists necessarily, but the salespeople go to the doctors and say, hey, we have a new drug that we think that you should prescribe to your patients. And they also shower them with these nice gifts and things. And, and the doctor's like, hmm, I kind of like this pharmaceutical representative. And if I start prescribing this drug, I might get more. These gifts are nice, and I'd like to see them keep coming. And so that's where lobbying, all of these things are illegal, but they happen under the table. And that's where the overall impression is we have a negative association with lobbyists. For that and for what Jess said, that sometimes we don't like lobbyists because they're advocating for policies that we don't agree with. We have to disassociate, are we against lobbyists because of advocating for something that we don't agree with, or is it because they're actually using corrupt and nefarious means to get their legislation passed. Again, the ones that we tend to hear in the news are the high-profile corruption cases. And we're like, ah, oh, lobbyists are bad. But really, lobbyists, well, I gave the one example of Chevron, I didn't complete it, but Chevron hires lobbyists to go in and talk to either state or federal policymakers, politicians, who are setting laws or proposing bills. And what lobbyists do at base is provide information. So here you have a senator who knows very little about any one particular issue. Let's say it's immigration rights. The senator is like, okay, I gotta decide how I'm gonna vote on this DREAM Act bill, but immigration policy is not my strength. I just, I don't know it well enough. And so the lobbyists on both sides come in and provide information to say, hey, here's what the research says. Here's what the outcomes are if we take this pathway, and here's what the <coughs> outcomes are if we go this pathway. And so the lobbyists actually provide assistance to the policymakers by providing information. Now you might say, oh, well, they're giving them biased information. Well, the political official needs to know that. Like, okay, 
there's going to be two sides of the story, but I'm going to weigh the evidence. And that's what the lobbyists provide, is, is information. And, and that's, I'll say, the good side of lobbyists. What I find interesting is that less than 2% of nonprofits seek to influence legislation. A lot of the private sector organizations actually engage in lobbying very regularly, and they have huge lobbying departments where their whole focus is lobbying state and federal legislation. Why do you think that so few nonprofits engage in lobbying activities? What would be some of the reasons? Yeah. Probably because they don't want to like, take a side on some issues because they think like, if they take a side, then they might lose donors that like, are against that side. Or, like, they could just like, kind of turn their backs on people that don't agree with that. So they don't want to rock the boat? Yeah. Can you think of an example where it would rock the boat and it would hurt the nonprofit? I don't know. I, uh -huh. I don't know. In concept, I agree with you, but then if you think of most nonprofits, yeah. their orientation is pretty clear what they're for or against. And so at the end of the day, the people who are supporting the nonprofit are probably in line with the direction of that nonprofit. So like if you're a, something related to the arts and someone proposes, hey, I think you should lobby the federal government for the National Endowment of the Arts to increase funding to that, because you're an arts organization and because most of your funders like the arts, the thought of advocating or lobbying for greater money being dedicated to the National Endowment of the Arts wouldn't really rock the boat. The only way it could rock the boat, maybe what you're implying, is that oh, I don't want to get political. Let's just do our thing. Let's not get political. Like, that would be the only... But that's not related to what side you take on an issue. If advocacy and lobbying in particular is so important and it could actually really open up a pool of resources to your mission and to your purposes, why is it that less than 2% actually engage in seeking to influence legislation? Yeah. Because there's a lot of restrictions on like 501c3s and what they can do, and the laws are kind of confusing. Okay, so yeah, a fear of we're not allowed to lobby. Like that would violate our nonprofit status if we engage in lobbying. And so people are like, we got to stay away from anything that is perceived as being political or seeking to influence legislation. Yeah. This is just a question, but is that two percent from associations? Do associations play into the nonprofits that... Do you have an example of an association? Um, like, I know that there's an association that works with like, nonprofits and groups that support elderly people. Uh -huh. um, and so then they try to influence like, ageism. In uh -huh. So you're saying that is the 2% that are engaged, are they primarily associations? Yeah. It might be, but even if it was, it's a very small person. Whatever nonprofit you are, it's a good chance that you're not seeking to influence legislation. Most of the nonprofits out there, there would be a good reason for them to consider engaging and seeking to influence legislation. That whole 2% is actually, by this one little small sector, it's just sort of across the board, people aren't doing it. Any other reasons that you can think of why the nonprofits wouldn't engage in it? Matt? Uh, I don't know, it's kind of like a really simple explanation, but it seems like I don't know if they have a, a problem, like you said, that's like a, a, a wicked issue or something. Like, uh huh. What do you say, myopic? A wicked, right? It's called. Oh, yeah, the wicked, like it's just 
a huge issue. But like in their, okay, maybe I'm just that wrong, because like in their community, I guess, like if it's just kind of the nature of the issue, whether it's urgent or not, or uh -huh. how like overwhelmed they are with like immediate response versus like the root of it. Sure, more focused on meeting the immediate needs versus addressing the long-term issues. Alyssa? Could it possibly also be a fear of potentially losing support of like personal like people donors because if people are so, like, have such a negative connotation towards lobbying and they learn that an organization that they donate to, like, donate money and time to is starting to lobby and they don't, like, actually research much into it, they could potentially just, like, stop and it's a fear for Sure. People have certain expectations of where you should spend your time. But again, I keep going back to if you really care about a particular issue or cause, the amount of resources that can come through the government, those resources are going to go somewhere. And so, you want to lobby for those resources to be funneled towards your issue or your cause. Because if you don't, it's going to be funneled somewhere else. And so then your issue or cause is going to be left out to dry. The examples I think that Worth brings up and others is it's too political. Lobbying is perceived as being political. A lot of people don't like being political, so they avoid it. As you all mentioned, the, the fear of alienating funders for a variety of reasons and then ultimately lack of clarity about the law. We're a nonprofit, we're not allowed to be political, we're not allowed to engage in political activity. And so I'm gonna explain some of the aspects of the law so that you guys at least will be clear about it. And the biggest distinction is different statuses. So the first is 501c4s. So that's one classification where there's incredible liberty and license in regards to advocacy and lobbying to remind you the 501c4s are exempt from paying taxes, but their contributions are not tax deductible. And this is a key thing. So like if I make a contribution to a 501c4, which is an advocacy organization, I don't get a tax deduction from that. And there's a reason because their job and their purpose is to lobby the government. And so I can't get a tax benefit from the activities that they're engaged in. And it's mainly because they then have unrestricted lobbying activity. So you think of any type of 501c4, it's an advocacy organization that seeks to influence legislation and campaigns. So any type of political campaign that you donate to or any type of advocacy organization, you can support it all you want, but you don't get a tax deduction from that. The ones that we're most familiar with are the 501c3s, which are the charitable organizations. These are the organizations that are set up to provide services or goods to people in need, to serve and help the broad public. They're exempt from paying taxes, contributions are tax deductible, and so what they fall into is this category of restricted lobbying activity. And so the laws on this are really interesting. They're very vague, they're again back to this best practices and like don't do too much, but you can do some. The reason for people being like, well, can we do political activity or not, is because of they're restricted in the amount they can do. This is a, a good example, and you guys are probably familiar with this one, is the Sierra Club. So oftentimes, an organization will set up two separate entities. One as a 501c4, and one as a 501c3. When the Sierra Club comes to you and says, do you want to make a donation, you actually probably don't know what you're donating to. If you're donating to the Sierra Club or the Sierra Club Foundation, but they're actually two separate things. The Sierra Club Foundation is the 501c3, and they do like education programs, they do things to promote 
the environment and to promote people's awareness of the environment and enjoyment of the environment, nature trails and anything that's sort of a charitable activity. And so when you donate to the Sierra Club Foundation, you're supporting all of the charitable activities. But then they also had this arm called the Sierra Club, which is a 501c4, and they are the lobbyist side, the advocacy side of the Sierra Club, and they're the ones that are in Washington, in Indianapolis, advocating for pro-environment policies. In a sense, the Sierra Club Foundation can do all this charitable activity and education and awareness and promoting the environment in a charitable way, and then at the same time, they have the Sierra Club, which is the advocacy and lobbying group, and so they don't violate any of the laws. And it's fairly common for large organizations to actually have two separate entities so that they don't violate the law. But let's say you're a more small-scale nonprofit, you're a 501c3, what does restricted lobbying activity mean? Again, I find it very fascinating that it's not black and white, and so there's a lot of ambiguity but lobbying cannot be a substantial part of your activity. So then your question is, what's a substantial part? Part of your mission. It shouldn't be a part of your mission, that's a good one. What would be another way to define substantial part? The funds that you put towards. Oh, okay. Yeah, so how much money are you allocating? So part of your budget. So your mission, your budget, anything else? Time. Time, okay. Yeah, time and effort that you dedicate to it. So all of those are good, but then what's the cutoff line? And that's where it's ambiguous, and it's been ambiguous. In 1976, they came up with this lobbying law, which tried to provide definitions, because up until this point, it's like, well, how much is too much? No one had really specified it, and it hadn't really been tested in the courts. So in 1976, they came up with this lobbying law, but even the, the lobby law is kind of unsatisfactory. There's two options that they give for nonprofits. Option one, uh, a substantial part of your organization's activities. So the substantial part of activities test. No more than 5% of your activities can be dedicated to active lobbying. So you can advocate, but lobbying is sort of a specific definition where you're trying to seek to influence specific legislation. How do you measure what percentage of your activities is going towards this is still unclear. And the second part is the expenditure test, what you said about budget. No more than 20% of your funding can go towards uh, lobbying activities. And so like if you have, let's say, staff that you've hired, and say you have three staff, and one of them is paid to do exclusively lobbying, your salary expenditures would probably exceed the 20%. And as a whole, you can't spend more than a million dollars on lobbying. So if you're a huge organization and 20% exceeds a million, that's a cap. And so most organizations like this expenditure test because it allows even more leeway. It gives you more license to be engaged in lobbying activity. Yeah. So you only have to choose one? Yeah. Okay. And, but you do have to choose one over. No, it's, at some point someone might come up to your nonprofit and say, hey, I think you're engaging in too much lobbying activity for a 501c3. You're exceeding the threshold of allowed activity, and you need to be able to demonstrate that, well, hey, we're still within the legal limit. If you look at our budget, less than 20% of our budget is being dedicated to lobbying activity. Or you could say, you look at our activities and all the things we're involved in, lobbying is just less than 5% of what we're doing. So you can choose either option. 
within the nonprofit sector as a whole, in general, the government hands off about it. These laws are more kind of like, there's a lot of gray area. It's very hard for me to think of a nonprofit that has lost its nonprofit status because of excessive lobbying or political activity. It's very uncommon. The most reason why they lose it is because of corruption or financial malfeasance, where they're doing things illegal with finances, but not because of excessive lobbying. There's two different types of lobbying, and Worth talks about this where there's direct lobbying, where you're seeking to influence elected officials. You're going straight to the state legislator, you're going straight to the U.S. Senator, and you're saying, this bill is going to be coming up on the House floor, and here's how we want you to vote. Here's the reasons why we want you to vote this way. And so you're going to the actual person who is voting on particular laws, and that's called direct lobbying. That's why a lot of professional lobbyists live in D.C., or at least in, in Indiana, they would live in Indianapolis, because that's who they're targeting and talking to. Then there's grassroots lobbying, where you're seeking to influence the general public. So you have advertising campaigns, you're lobbying on behalf of a particular issue or cause, and you're trying to sway the opinion of the general public. And so there's people who lobby for, for greater gun control laws, and they're trying to influence the general public about gun control laws and how those are important and valuable and you have other people who are saying that the right to bear arms is essential, and so they're lobbying for protection of gun owner rights. Same would be with things like with gay marriage, being for gay marriage or being against gay marriage or trying to sway public opinion. And it's like grassroots lobbying where you go door to door, providing information, trying to sway people's opinions or decisions. Where the difference between just informing the public and influencing their decisions is if the communication includes a call to action. So as an organization, you're allowed to inform the public, and that's actually not considered lobbying. If you're just saying, here's the facts, even if the facts are skewed towards your views of, of a particular issue, that's actually not considered lobbying. So you probably have gotten this where you get an email and it says, we need to protect animal rights. Animals are being treated cruelly and inhumanely. Can you write a letter to your state legislator? Or can you sign this petition? You know, something where it's a call to action in response to this information. That's where it sort of tips into lobbying activity. And then the last part is campaigning. So that's another realm of the political stuff. And this is actually probably more straightforward. So campaigning is action taken to support or oppose specific candidates. And so this is, from my perspective, a much more straightforward thing. So a 501c34 can participate in political campaigning, so the Sierra Club can endorse a particular candidate. The NRA can endorse a particular candidate. You know who they endorse. During the election cycle, you know who all these organizations, these high-profile nonprofits, you know who they endorse. But you wouldn't see a 501c3 endorse a particular candidate. Or if you think of the best example would be like churches. Churches fall under the realm of C3s, and it's illegal for a church to endorse a particular candidate. They can talk about the candidates that are going up for election. They can even invite them to come and speak. They can have voting ballots that they send out to sort of help people to know the issues and stuff. But they can't explicitly say, we think you should vote for this particular candidate. That would be crossing the line, that would be called campaigning. So 
that's a more straightforward thing, and you can see, like, did they endorse, you know, they just don't endorse candidates because that would be a straightforward violation of their nonprofit status. You have advocacy, which is supporting a particular idea or cause or person, and then lobbying is sort of taking the next step of influencing legislation, and then campaigning is getting your people into the elected offices. Not only verbally saying we endorse this person, but also providing funding for that. So again, 501c3s can't give money to a candidate's campaign. A C4 can. So these are some of the distinctions that go on.